0: Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom is working for Birth Monopoly. I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. What I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much.
1: This is Kristen Piscucci with an urgent message. We are nearing the end of an all-or-nothing funding campaign for a groundbreaking new film called Mother May I, produced by me and the Birth Monopoly Foundation about birth trauma and obstetric violence. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I strongly believe the only way we are going to make meaningful, real change is to make these hidden issues public. So I partnered with an amazing team to make a movie that will bring these issues out into the light, validate women's voices, and spark a real conversation about what is happening in maternity care and what we can do to fix it. This podcast is part of the Mother May I series on birth trauma, obstetric violence, and legal rights. I urge you to support our film today as it reaches the May 15th deadline for funding. We are most of the way there, but we must reach our goal or we get nothing. Go to com and hit the donate button today and help us get this force for change out into the world. Now, please enjoy this podcast with the amazing Dr. Tracy Vogel. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Tracy Vogel, who is an OB anesthesiologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She received her MD from the University of Pittsburgh and finished her anesthesia training in California at Stanford University. Dr. Vogel struck up a correspondence with me and my project partner, Lindsay Askins, after she saw the Exposing the Silence project and sent us this amazing message. She said, I've always had a passion for maternal health care and love that I get to practice exclusively in labor and delivery. Unfortunately, I've also witnessed a truly disturbing trend in the delivery of care to maternity patients. Very little attention is focused on the psychological well-being of the mom. It seems that caregivers are treating the disease and not the patient. I'm especially concerned at the lack of training for any and all residents that take part in the care of obstetric patients and how to approach and communicate with the obstetric patient, especially those who have already had PTSD or a history of previous sexual abuse when they present to labor and delivery. So now Dr. Vogel is working on a book that focuses on women's negative birth experiences with a concentration on anesthesia issues. And she's also working to make the entire network of hospitals she works for a center of excellence in providing trauma-informed care. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Kristen. I'm very (laughs) excited to be here to talk about my efforts and to talk about this problem in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your efforts. Do you want to start by talking about the book?
0: Sure. Let me uh, preface that a little bit by how the idea of the book came to be. Great. I started at my current job about five and a half years ago. And before that, I always had my hand in the obstetric anesthesia world, but I never practiced exclusively with that population. And I think that's pretty standard for most anesthesiologists, even with fellowship training. We don't just go right into OB only practice. And I think that's a good thing. Initially, you should be experienced in everything. But after being in private practice, academic medicine, I decided that I really wanted to work exclusively with obstetric patients. It's what I loved, it was my passion. So I found a place that would hire me just to do that and what I was able to do then was to follow trends and to actually get a bigger picture of what was happening over time. And that's when it started to really hit that something's going on here and it was something I never noticed before but then I was never in OB every day to see this. Women were coming from other institutions where they were commenting on their previous horrible experience, or um, I don't wanna talk about it, or it was so bad, it was so awful. And it always made me raise an eyebrow thinking, my goodness, what's happening out there? And then I started seeing patients within our own institution where I'd go, maybe it happened overnight, and I'd go and see them the next day and realize, Oh my, it's not everywhere else only, it's happening right here, what is going on? And I felt um, almost helpless at first because I didn't know what to do. And I would bring it up and give my other colleagues some feedback perhaps on a patient who was very upset and their response was always defensive. Well, I, she didn't say anything or it was fine, I didn't do anything differently. And so I felt like I had to do something. So that's where I got the idea of just starting to collect these stories from women and start interviewing them and about their previous experiences and try to put some meaning behind that, at least Mm -hmm. put out, I don't know, something about how the patients were feeling about this. There was what I realized was a big gap in how providers thought they were doing and how patients thought providers were doing or what their experiences were all about.
1: Well, I guess, you know, if you're not hearing women's stories and really listening to them, then how would you know what patients are feeling and thinking
0: You don't. And there are so many reasons, I think, why this happens. It's multifactorial. But one of the, the big problems is that, one, we don't ask the right questions. When we go to see women after their experiences, we ask them, do you have a headache? Do you have bleeding? We ask the physical questions. And then even if we were to ask the questions about, hey, how are you emotionally? It might be too soon to ask that question because of all the hormonal changes that happen right in the immediate birthing period of time, that peripartum period. And then we don't call them when it's the right time to ask those questions. That's part of the problem. Another thing is women don't always want to tell you what happened, especially if you're the one that yeah. gave them that terrible experience. Yeah, they not want to share with you how horrible you did. And there are lots of reasons why they might not feel safe to do that. So not asking the right questions, not getting that feedback. We just carry on in our lives thinking we're doing a great job. And meanwhile, the women have had these horrific experiences, are now traumatized and don't know what to do with that experience. So again, that made me feel like I have to get it out there to other women. One, that they're not alone, that this has happened to other people. And number two, to hopefully catch the eyes and ears of other providers so they could read the book too and say, oh my goodness, I had no idea that this was happening. Mm -hmm. So that's what gave me an idea to at least start a book. And then now that has grown into some other things as well, but that was the start. And just to kind of summarize what it is, it does focus primarily on the anesthesia side of things which is where I'm an expert in that field. And I thought, okay, I feel that I could comment the most on seven different sections of care where we're intimately involved. But as I was writing this book and talking to women and getting more and more stories, I realized it's not just the anesthesia side of things. It's everything in their labor Mm -hmm. and experience that could potentially traumatize them. But, but my book does focus primarily on things like what I call epidural misadventures. Uh, We talk about what it's like in the cesarean section, operating room experience. We talk about um, even things like the women who have been on opiates and how the stigma, the trauma that they undergo when they come Mm -hmm. into treatment, it's horrible. So th- those are just three, but I have seven different distinct sections, and I have now completed seven different interviews, one for each of these sections. And so we're hoping that's to, awesome. them, maybe even by the end of the year.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Yay. Well, I know we were in Pittsburgh for, for our project, and I remember at least one woman saying you know, that she had had inadequate anesthesia during a cesarean. And, uh, you know, other people said that in other parts of the country too. And it was really interesting because I remember them saying no one believed them when they were like, I can feel everything, you know, like I I can feel what's happening and no one believed them. And I just thought like, that sounds incredibly, incredibly traumatic. I mean, just, yeah, that sounds really horrible. Yeah
0: if you imagine probably one of your worst nightmares is to be feeling pain, have somebody not believe you have your arms potentially strapped down where you can't even push people away or have them stop. Mm -hmm. And this is a practice that is still done out there.
1: It does sound like a nightmare.
0: It's horrible. And I, I can understand now how these women end up with significant PTSD after this event. And this is supposed to be an event that is positive. I don't want to always say wonderful. Labor is dirty, it's hard, it's, you know, it's painful, it's emotional, but we want it to be positive at the very least. Wonderful, Yeah. You get that, right? Yeah. But to have somebody go through that, it makes me, my heart breaks for all of them when that happens. That is something too that I'm going to explore in a section of my book as to why. Why is that happening? There would be no other operation in any hospital anywhere. Yeah. Let me just give you an example. If you were having your knee replaced, for example, and Mm -hmm. somebody did a spinal anesthetic or an epidural for that, where you numbed you from the hips down. And if that patient said, that's hurting me, a surgeon would look over the drape and give the anesthesiologist the stink eye and say, (laughs) Give this person an adequate anesthetic, period. That mm-hmm. person would not be allowed to scream, yell, say, I feel that, I feel that, it's hurting me, and not get the proper anesthetic. So yeah. what is it different in obstetrics is the question. I, I know there's a second individual there and we always are looking out for the maternal fetal unit, but at that point we have two patients. But there are still very safe ways. To handle those circumstances. And we're always weighing the risks and benefits. And you have to weigh the, the risk of not giving someone an adequate anesthetic at that point, mm-hmm. because that risk is so great to their emotional well-being afterwards, or psychological yeah. well-being. Yeah. And there are things that have led us down this path. I don't think anybody really intends to harm a patient. There's some of this denial that no your epidural must be working you must be feeling pressure not pain right or I have there's a baby in there I can't give you any sedation let's wait till the baby's out and then we'll give you something that could be 10 minutes of excruciating pain so it's it's a lot of things like that and there was there was some research and literature I think probably in the early 90s that talked about how dangerous it was to put a patient to sleep that was pregnant under a general anesthetic. Mm -hmm. There are inherent risks to that. We know that based on the Mm -hmm. physiological changes of pregnancy. But I think that pendulum swung a little too far in the direction of not putting patients to sleep. And I think the author of that article also is recognizing that because she's written some editorials since that time, restating that, There are the appropriate times to give somebody the right anesthetic. You cannot Mm -hmm. deny them that. So I think she also is, hey, we're going a little too far in that direction. We need to bring people back.
1: Yeah, I I actually remember it was either Pittsburgh or Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. I remember the woman saying, I was begging them to put me under. And they kept saying, no, you want to be awake for this and she was like no i want to be put under like don't tell me what i want right now you know it is a really tricky tricky moment i think for everyone
0: yeah and as much as we want to we want to provide the safest anesthetic to mom and to baby we also have to we do try to take into account the maternal wishes try to balance that as much as we can but i think those conversations really should happen long before you get to the operating room.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that, I? you know, I think communication has so much to do with all of these problems, you know, ahead of time, just being really clear what everyone's views are, what their wishes are, what their expectations are, and the contingency plans, you know? So what if this happens? What would, you know, sort of like with medical directives, you know, with end-of-life stuff where you're like, okay, well, if this happens, this is what we want to do. If this happens, you know, let's talk about, you know, what the options are. Yeah, that would really, communication is a big piece.
0: And it's it's happening, like you said, probably too often, too late to go through. Yeah. someone's In the middle of surgery. Um, Sometimes I get the opportunity to talk to patients about serious issues right before their case, which is better than in the operating room. Yeah. Even better is, and this is something we're trying to do at our hospital, is to bring patients in to talk to me either personally in a clinic that I run and that we've we've established for high-risk obstetric patients. And I put out there again to all my obstetric colleagues, it's not just for physical high-risk, but this is also for patients with emotional high-risk Yeah. And that can be anything from, they had a traumatic birth experience last time. They have a history of PTSD from Mm sexual trauma, childhood trauma. Um, They just are scared to death of being in an operating room. So any of those things, they can come talk to me when they Mm -hmm. are six months pregnant. I've even seen people in their first trimester talking about, Hey, I have a back that is in the shape of an S and I am just horrified. That's the ideal I think is to talk to women, even before they get to labor and delivery. Yeah. We try to get to them before they're in pain or before they hit the operating room. So yeah. there are some points along that chain to address expectations, but you're yeah. so much about communication. Right. Having people truly open up enough and feel safe enough to tell you, what am I afraid of and why? And then right. you know, to know and to have the skills to say to them, Okay. So you have a history of sexual abuse. Okay. So here's your safe space. We're going to talk about it. Not the details, but thank you for sharing your history of that. But let's talk about now what we're going to do going forward and how we can help through it. So it is truly about connecting and communicating and then completing the task in a way that they feel empowered.
1: Has the way you practice changed? Do you think as you've talked to more women and... I have
0: to say, I have changed my practice completely. I have shifted my paradigm. And I will t- I'll tell you a story about a patient in a moment. Um, but I, I really think that it's, it's a hard, it's really hard to make a cultural change in medicine. Yeah. And what we're all trying to do, you with your project, me with mine, and all the other wonderful people that are working in this direction, they're realizing, wow, it is, it's really difficult But you have to dig deep into what is what makes the culture and how can you change it, right? I think one of the big things is the paradigm of how you see yourself as a provider or a physician. And we're taught for so long to say to a patient, I'm in charge, I know what's best for you. So I'm here this is who I am. And I'm going to tell you what's going to be done. Yeah. And then I'm going to tell you the risks and benefits of this. Instead, we need to shift the way we think and how we practice to more of a, hi, I'm Dr. Vogel. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what you need from me. Not yeah. what I'm going to do for you to you, but what do you need from me? Mm-hmm. And we, in order to do that, we have to have some skills. We have to learn how to listen. We have to be genuine and say, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to hear where you're coming from so that we can come up with a very safe plan together. Mm-hmm. that's comprehensive, right? Yeah. So that, that has been, it's been a very interesting journey for me in the last five years to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. just, just one example, um, in my entire career, I have only had two grievances ever filed that involved me, which I I'm very proud of that, but I'm also sickened of the two and both are, are these with the hospital you mean? Correct. Or, okay. From, from any patient. And and they were all they were both good outcomes in the sense that everyone was physically safe, right? So Well, and by the
1: way, people couldn't see you doing air quotes when you said good outcomes. I just (laughs) want to mention
0: that. So, quote unquote, right? Um, Everyone was healthy, physically healthy. But the first one was upset because I didn't physically do her epidural. I was supervising one of my outstanding senior, most senior residents, who really was one of the top notch, top top of the class. And I knew she had requested me to do it. And the day was very busy. It got to be the afternoon and the resident said room, the patient in room one is ready. And I looked at him and I knew he was going to try to create a rapport with her. And I said, is she okay with you doing it? He said, yeah, I think so. Miscommunication again. I was there standing right with her. It was really a straightforward epidural. Um, Ended up being a little bit more to one side. We adjusted it a little bit and gave her a little more medicine, but she was so comfortable. She felt like she couldn't push because she had to have a little extra medicine and it resulted in um, a vacuum assisted delivery. Mm -hmm. Again, everyone was physically fine and she was very upset. So I had to take a deep breath. And I had, and this was early in my career at this hospital. And I had to put myself in the right place before I called her to not be defensive and say, how could she be upset? I was right there. She didn't say anything. Yeah. And I couldn't wait till Monday to call her. This was Friday. They told me that she was upset about it. And so I called her from the grocery store on Saturday. And I could so not, you
1: were really thinking about it, like, I can't sit on this.
0: felt terrible that she could perceive my care as being not outstanding, right? So I called her and chatted with her for 45 minutes and apologized. And then I understood a little bit more about her circumstance and why she didn't feel she could speak up, why she really wanted me to do it, because she'd had a Bad experience the first time, which I didn't quite get in the history. And I learned a lot about Mm -hmm. it's it's not about me. I have to be able to be humble enough to go to these patients to say I'm sorry, to understand what I did wrong, and to tell her, thank you for kind of um give me a wake-up call, so to speak. Yeah. One of the first ones where I realized. I have to really listen mm-hmm. to what people are telling me. I have mm-hmm. to dig a little deeper. And now my practice is if they request me specifically, or they, I know they've had a traumatic experience with an epidural in the past, I tell them, you get a free pass to me. There are no more trainees allowed. Even if they are excellent going into OB anesthesia, they're not allowed. That's automatic. They get right to me. That was one. Another one was an interesting story a lady who saw me in my clinic, she asked for a specific type of an anesthetic, which we did. We accommodated her. Again, early in my six years here in this journey, and she wanted no males in the room. Uh huh. And some people want that for religious reasons, spiritual reasons, others need it because they've had prior sexual trauma. I didn't quite put everything together, but we had no males in the room except the very end One of my residents was handing me a piece of equipment that was more appropriate for her. And the drape came open a little bit. And luckily Mm -hmm. she wasn't uncovered, but she was very upset. Yeah. When I talked to her on the phone, again, had to put myself in that right mindset and say, you know, that's not my fault. That is my fault. I take responsibility for that. And I realized what she was telling me. It's very important. So again, I don't want to under, appreciate what a patient is telling me. So yeah. now when we have somebody that requests no mails, it goes up on a big whiteboard that we have. We have signs on the doors. We make it a point at our safety rounds, which we do three times a day to make sure everyone's aware of that. I also make a personal comment to say, under no circumstances do you go in there unless you've cleared it with us and the nurse and the patient. Um, so we really do take it seriously. But those yeah. are few times where I've had to Really be in that paradigm again of, it's not about me. It can't say anymore, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. We have so many males. How are we going to find a way to not get a male in that room? Which is a typical comment for maybe some of my yeah. Mom. But we have to really take more of an effort.
1: And really, it's about the patient. It's not about you, like you said. Yeah.
0: It's all about them. And it's also, one of my new mottos is, one size fits no one. So all of these protocols that we're adopting, all of these new standards of care or um, initiatives, and so they have different terms, but they're trying to create plans that are generic for everyone. And on one hand, I understand we're trying to bring in outliers in practices, so we keep people safe. But at the same time, we still have to approach each patient individually and figure out how to talk to them, get them to share with us what it is that they need so we can give them a tailored type of experience. So that's how I have truly changed in how I practice or one of the main ways is just shifting it. Well, that's
1: amazing. I think that takes some strength and some humility and some vulnerability really to be able to make that change.
0: It it, vulnerability is a good word, because as a physician and you're, as we're trained and you go through all of these years of schooling and training to find out you're wrong again. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's hard, right? It's very hard. Yeah. And it is, it puts you in a vulnerable place. I think just learning through all this, these stories and these patients, it it does make you think, wow, I've been doing it all wrong in, in a lot of ways up to this point. And it's like starting over. It really is in certain areas, but I think it's, it's healthy. It's good, but you have to be willing to open yourself up to that. Um, I think on that. Okay.
1: No, I was going to say it's time to take a break already. So we'll take a break for just a minute. This podcast is part of the Mother May I series on birth trauma, obstetric violence, and legal rights. I urge you to support our film today as it reaches the May 15th deadline for funding. We are most of the way there, but we must reach our goal or we get nothing. Go to com and hit the donate button today and help us get this force for change out into the world. We're back with Dr. Tracy Vogel, an OB anesthesiologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And before we went to the break, you talked about how difficult it was to be a doctor so highly trained and to suddenly think, oh my goodness, I've been doing some things wrong. And it kind of strikes me that in fact, in having that realization and wanting to make changes that's how you become a great doctor, right? Rather than kind of sticking your head in the sand and going, I'm not going to admit that I did anything wrong. I'm going to keep doing things the way I've always done them. And then, so what, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I, I agree that it has, it's definitely changed. It has allowed me to really grow in what I do. And I, I like to think that I'm practicing a little something different, something better I I do think that I, I recognize things a lot differently now. It's been tremendous. It really has. I have a new purpose at work, it, and sometimes I feel very overwhelmed because of all of the things I'd like to change. But I realize why not me? Why not me? I heard um, I think it was Emma Watson that did a speech to the UN uh-huh. she talks about making change in this world, and she says, "Well, if not now, when? If not." me than who, right? It just took these experiences to open my eyes. I keep saying to my family and to some of my colleagues, I feel like a veil has been lifted in how I see the care that Mm I'm providing, the care that other people are still kind of stuck in. Mm -hmm. It's just, sometimes you have to be, you have to open yourself up to vulnerability. And you have to be told, no, you did it wrong in order to reevaluate and grow as a, a provider, as a physician, or in any career, really, if you really want to make a difference.
1: I have a theory that what you're talking about is a burnout. What's the word? I'm like, I was going to say deterrent, but that's the wrong word. A burnout, like mitigator. Uh, <laughs> what?
0: Like a haze or a fog? Like a- no, no,
1: like... It's a preventative for burnout.
0: Oh, I like see. Like what
1: what you're sharing is I have a mission at work. I'm not just, you know, dragging myself in every day, tired, over you know, stressed, overworked, feeling undervalued, like I can never, you know, like I'm on a hamster wheel or something, which, you know, a lot of physicians complain about. There are so many pressures and, and I, I don't mean complain in a in a minimizing way, because there there is Real burnout, real trauma, you know, real high suicide rates among physicians. But I I have noticed that with the small number of physicians that I've spoken with who have this real passion for patient centered care and for changing the system, that they don't they seem to be a little more immune to the, the burnout factors, which I think is is really interesting.
0: I think that in order to eliminate burnout, and there have been a, a lot of, there's been a lot of research, a lot of publications about physician burnout, and they do identify that purpose at, at work as mm-hmm. one of those factors that can keep you from becoming burned out. Is that you feel that you have value to your system, and that what you're doing is meaningful or purposeful? Mm-hmm. You're right, and and I, I'm more energized now than I ever been, have ever been. And I believe it. Um, And I think it really, it comes across and people are now, they're listening. And when I, some of the ways that I am trying to change what we do at the hospital is to start with small and big at the same time. And then we're going to dig towards the middle, which is towards the providers and the culture eventually, but starting small with everyday things. So when I'm with a patient, I make sure that. My trainees can listen to how I talk to patients. I, any patient that has a difficult experience from the past, we can talk about how we can make it better for them. So every day teaching with every single patient, we talk about how can we keep this woman safe? How can we keep her from having a negative experience? So that's every patient, every day, every time. Um, when we have what we call our safety rounds, which is a gathering of all the providers on the obstetric unit. So, this includes social workers, pediatricians, um, our nurses from OB, our anesthesiologists, residents, everybody. We meet, we talk about every patient quickly about what we can do to make sure they're safe. So, everybody knows about them. And I might like, make sure I bring up for example, um, this person is at very high risk for hemorrhage. Let's make sure we talk to her about what could happen. Let's make sure we're ready. Let's you know, talk through all of these things so it's not a crisis. So we avoid the crisis, right? I talk to them about somebody who might have had previous sexual abuse in a certain room. Let's not forget to mention that. We want to make sure everyone goes in calmly, We limit the people in the room, et cetera. So that's in safety round.
1: Well, I, you know, I was going to mention one thing that I think is so important is we have such a clear hard line between physical outcomes and all the other outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, it can be so damaging. They, they impact each other. You can't separate them out right. all the time. When you're talking about a woman at a high risk for hemorrhage, I think, you know, what if there was a communication failure there and she didn't feel comfortable, you know, telling you some other circumstances or the doctor was just in a hurry and she didn't have the wherewithal to say, actually, wait, stop, I have to tell you about this other thing that happened before. You know, you know these are, these are real safety risks when we're compromising communication and when patients don't understand that individualized care is the goal these things are just so integral to each other. You can't, you know, if there's not that trust there, then the communication is stilted. If you don't have the communication, then you don't really know. You can't understand the patient's circumstances any more than, you know, what you've got kind of on a piece of paper about, you know, what history happens to be there. And certainly with sexual abuse where not everybody's comfortable disclosing that, you know, I don't know if, I can't imagine disclosing that over and over to, to people,
0: people, and that's that's a really hard situation. Um, currently, I'm finishing the training. It's 40 extra hours of um, intense training to become a sexual assault counselor at our um, Allegheny County Pittsburgh Action Against Rape. So, what I've learned yeah. from them is that probably one in four women were abused before they were 18. That's 20% yeah. of our population. Yeah. They're childbearing age now. So, and I'm, I'm really thinking that's probably underestimating the number when yeah. you get to OB because we know that violence can increase during the vulnerabil- vulnerability times of being pregnant. So even if we assumed a quarter of our patients have had some history like that, they don't disclose because like you said, there's not maybe enough time to establish a trust. Mm-hmm. The providers aren't given any skills to really ask about that in the right way. I think hospitals are trying. They might put a little line on a piece of paper that says, do you feel right. safe at home? Have you been the victim of abuse? Right. And sometimes those questions are asked in front of family members. Or yeah. Who might be the ones doing the abuse? So right. we haven't created a safe zone yet to even get the right information. Right? Somebody doesn't have enough time to get the information the right way. Or a patient doesn't know that maybe they need to tell somebody that they had a near death experience once, or they're, somebody very close to them died and they bled to death. And they've made mm-hmm. that, for example. And mm-hmm. they don't share that with a provider. And this is somebody who has a chance of bleeding or doesn't understand that bleeding is normal after delivery, that might traumatize them and make their whole experience horrific. The patient doesn't even know that they're connected.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's huge. I think that so many people are, one, unaware that they even have trauma, and two, even if they are aware of it, have no idea that childbirth under care could be really re-triggering for that. It reminds me of a conversation that I was participating in recently online with some nurses where someone made the comment about how, you know, some women can be re-traumatized or triggered from their maternity care because of previous sexual abuse. And, you know, some people got really offended by that and said, you know, it was sort of like a, how dare you, how dare you suggest that I would sexually violate a patient. And it was like they couldn't see it from they just couldn't see it from the patient's perspective at all and so they were like rejecting the idea that this patient feels sexually violated. But the other thing that really strikes me about that whole conversation of course is that the the patient isn't even necessarily aware of why they're traumatized or you know what's triggering for them. I mean you you hear about people all the time who are adults before they even Come to terms with previous trauma.
0: It can be decades later before they yeah. it, before they even remember it. But what they live with are all of the signs and symptoms.
1: Yeah, and it's in their bodies.
0: It's in their bodies. It's in their behaviors. We now mm-hmm. learn that adult survivors of childhood trauma can display things like anxiety, depression, poor coping skills. So substance use disorders are common Mm -hmm. with that. Um, Other types of behaviors that aren't safe or healthy, eating disorders, um, smoking, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Those can be the symptoms of previous trauma. But no, but we all look at the symptoms and we take them without understanding where did that come from? Like, right. I have never seen so many pregnant women diagnosed with anxiety and depression. As I do now, I look at my other colleagues and say, does that not shock anybody that maybe 80% of our patients in a given day, we counted one day, 80% of them had a history of anxiety and or depression and or some sort of admitted abuse in the past. That's incredible. It was an, I couldn't believe it and but then I could because of all the training I'm doing now with victims of sexual trauma and what happens when they're adults that might be right on target that we've yeah. started counting and we found a way to have women feel safe enough to truly disclose. And that's a study I'd like to do, find a way and yeah that we would see at least thirty percent of our patients yeah. with history.
1: Well, and, you know, when you're talking about culture, there's a larger cultural issue there, I think, which is, you know, we are coming to terms with the sexual violence in our culture. And I think that we are now labeling things as assault or harassment or abuse that we wouldn't have, you know, when I was in high school, it was just, oh, that was just, you know, a bad date. Or not, I guess it didn't really date in high school, but, you know, at that time it was just seen as like, oh, well, he's just a jerk or, you know, just that whole like that was just a bad experience when now we would look at that situation and say, actually, that was that was assault what happened. And I'm not necessarily even talking about sexual intercourse full on, but in just all the little ways that I think for so long women have been really condition to you know just put up with this stuff as if it's part of life and this denial that it's that it's actually traumatic and as we see the larger culture change I, I hope that that's something that will kind of infuse itself into healthcare that that larger cultural acknowledgement that that people really own their bodies and that just telling people to get over it isn't isn't okay when you've, when you've had a trauma, no matter how little it might seem to someone else. And the issue of consent too, you know, that's changed a lot.
0: That's a huge problem, I think, in our system right now. And like you said, it's women own their own bodies. And it's such this, I don't want to say it's, it's a gray zone. It's not. According to the law, women still own their bodies, even when they are pregnant. hmm and there, there's some different interpretations under different circumstances. And we've seen the lawsuits that have come out regarding this and not giving consent or not mm-hmm. having the women consent to certain procedures or that, that right, those human rights being taken away from them um, mm-hmm. in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And I, I just shake my head. and say, why? Why is that happening? How is that allowed to happen? And I think we need to all be really pushing back right now to make sure that those laws don't change where women are stripped of their human rights. And I, I just think that would be devastating to have that happen. We need yeah. to empower women to know, know what their choices are. Again, educate them on all of the possibilities and what can be done, and what can't be done so that maybe we're not even in those circumstances to begin with, where mm-hmm. we have to say, We need an attorney to come in and say, this woman's not competent. We're going to take her to the OR and take this baby out. I'll give you a great example. Mm -hmm. I walked onto the floor one morning and everyone was in a little bit of a frenzy. And I I caught a little bit here and there. I went up and listened and they said, well, there's a woman and roommate and she's refusing an epidural. She's refusing uh, magnesium. She's refusing a cesarean section. Even if it means her baby would die, she's refusing everything. And I listened and apparently she did have preeclampsia that was pretty severe and the baby, I think there was meconium. So there were definitely outward signs that he was not doing so well, but I listened a little bit more and I just asked a question. um, Does she have any other history? Meaning does she have a psychiatric history? Is she schizophrenic? Does she have a definitive DSM diagnosis? Right. That would make her not be able to make a choice. And they said, no, no psychiatric history at all. And then just a vague mention of abuse in her past. So in the meantime, they had already put in phone calls to the ethics committee at the hospital, the psychiatry department, and to the legal department, which caught me by surprise. And I thought to myself, what are you thinking you'd like to have them do? So anyway, while that was all going on, I asked the, um, the OB attending where the the staff OB person was female so she and I went together and I said I need to talk to her first and I we need to have a a small group of people to go in there and she allowed me at that point she was so uncomfortable that she said she was okay with an epidural so I did that personally myself giving her choices giving her the control basically of the procedure I did everything on her pace we got her very comfortable. Then I sat down lower than she is, so she's looking down on me, and just basically sat and chatted for a little bit about, wow, it must be very scary to you to think about going to the operating room. And then I asked her, I said, Have you ever had surgery before? And she said, Yes, she had had ankle surgery twice. And I said, Must have been pretty awful because you certainly sounds like you don't want to go back to the operating room. And she said it was one of the most horrible experiences. And both times they strapped down my arms and they slapped oxygen face masks on me. And I went on to just talk to her and say, I have a lot of patients who have different fears about going to the operating room. And I have a certain way of just kind of talking to them, not necessarily about why they're afraid, but why other people were afraid and what I did differently. And so when I mentioned that, For other women, I've taken the arm extenders, those arm boards, completely off the bed. She looked at me and said, You can do that? And I said, Yes, we can do that. I said, I've brought in whoever the significant other in the room for the spinal or whatever for the whole time. And she said, Oh, that would be wonderful. And I talked about a little bit of anti anxiety medicines. We continued to formulate a plan without her even realizing that's what we were doing. Yeah. Once we talked, and she felt comfortable in communicating with a plan for all of this and empowering her to make those decisions. We no longer needed legal. We no longer yeah. needed psychiatry. The, the ethics committee, I met with them, and I said, I think we're fine. Same yeah. things, but I think she's very sane. She's competent. She can make her own decisions. But once we understood her behaviors in the context of her past, yeah, she was perfectly sane and appropriate in what she was doing.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like she feared a loss of control, but that was a really reasonable fear based on her past.
0: Right. And she had been sexually abused by her father. We found out. So there was that past, previous re-traumatization in the operating room twice. Mm -hmm. She was horrified to go there to the point where she would even willing to not go, even if it meant hurting her child, which she really did not have any intent of doing that. Right. She spent 10 months growing this, beautiful, healthy baby, and did everything right. Mm-hmm. There's, why, we have to ask that question, why would she all of a sudden be so different now? And maybe right. think of her um, irrational behavior, quote unquote, <laughs> as um, something that needed legal, right? So those are the right. kind of things where I don't think we need to have legal involved if we understand our patients and where they're coming from and can give them choices and educate them ahead of time so that what yeah. like, could possibly happen. It's a big step
1: to to see yourself as I've gone from being a, essentially a service provider to a legal authority over this person. That's a big, you know, I feel like you need to really think really seriously about ever considering that. And I know ACOG says you know basically there are almost no conditions in which that is appropriate and i think you're you're absolutely right you know what that situation you just described it sounds like it came down to kind of a battle of wills until someone stepped in and was willing to really really be vulnerable you know sitting down below her and willing to be willing to talk to her instead of just saying this is what has to be done and and we're going to do this
0: by any means necessary. Yeah. And letting them know that we can do better.
1: We can. Yeah. Help
0: her yeah. When she's ready to have it done.
1: So we only have a couple minutes left. That time went really quickly. It's so two really quick questions. Sure. What advice would you give to other clinicians who are looking to make these kinds of changes in their workplaces?
0: Okay, so some advice. Um, Number one would be to get some education. You need to learn some skills. I think that can help to learn how to talk to patients a little bit differently. Um, I would say re-examine your own practice and how much are you willing to change? Because it does, you have to really Like I said, become vulnerable and understand who you are in order to be able to offer the right kind of care to your patients. You have to be ready to go up against a huge culture that is not not thinking that way at the moment. It is a battle and you have to be willing and ready to fight. But I think it's so worth it. And it makes your, your work so much more purposeful and meaningful, as I mentioned before. There yeah. are a couple of really good books, at least in terms of um, learning how to understand that subset of patients who've had prior sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Penny Skin is a great resource. Her book, When Survivors Birth," mm-hmm. is a book that a patient gave to me, which really changed my practice. So, Who gave it to you? A patient.
1: Oh, a patient. Okay.
0: She recommended it and it has really changed how I approach these patients. Yeah. And, but then they're also, you, you have to be an advocate at all times for these patients so that they're not traumatized for the first time in labor. So this is the whole another yeah. population that they may come in expecting this beautiful baby. And um, I think two things that I've learned from, either reading patient stories or interviewing them. One is learn how to listen, well, actually three things. One, learn how to listen. Number two, never use the, well, at least you got this, or at least this happened. Um, And I am forgetting on who, where that came from, but it's a really um, beautiful little YouTube clip where she talks about don't use the at least phrase. And then the third one is be careful with your words like saying congratulations, congratulations all the time. Because I think what we really need to be saying is perhaps you just had a beautiful baby girl or baby boy. How are you feeling about that? Instead of throwing out congratulations, which would imply that, oh, everything is fine, everything's perfect. You should be happy about this. And there are many women who walk mm-hmm. away from their birth experience. And they're not feeling like it's congratulations. Maybe mm-hmm. people to ask them, how are you doing? Do you mm-hmm. need some support on this? Or this doesn't look like it was a great experience for you. Maybe we should talk mm-hmm. about why. Yeah,
1: and an acknowledgement that you, you don't have to feel just one way. Right. People have very complicated relationships to their births, right? Mm-hmm. And you can feel horrified and traumatized and also grateful and thrilled and in love with, you know, your baby. So yeah. maybe
0: you should let them put their own words to it. Maybe you yeah. learn a little bit more about what is this birth experience about? It's different for every single person. And yeah. again, that that, whole, that phrase, one size fits no one. We need mm-hmm. to start tailoring our care to each individual patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So for, for people listening at home, is there any way that they can help or contribute to anything that you're doing? I don't know how far along you are in the book. If you need more stuff or.
0: Well, I will tell you some of the other things that we, that I am doing on my end. So the book has all the stories right now that I need for that. However, I am starting a website and I don't have it. It's in the works. The branding is happening now, but the website will offer um, a place for women who want to continue to tell stories, but also with a section for providers to perhaps write in with some of their dilemmas as well and talk about what they've noticed, or how how should they handle a certain situation. Mm-hmm. It's also going to be a site that might provide ultimately some legal support for women who suffer from traumatic experiences that don't know where to turn. I also would like it to be a source of education. And I think one of the things I'd like to do is ultimately change the licensing in all the different states so that Anybody that deals with obstetric patients should have some training in trauma-informed care. So you know how to prevent it going forward and you know how to take care of those that have been traumatized in the past. So those are all hopes and goals. So at this point, anybody is welcome to reach out to me. Um, I can provide that for you at some point, the best reach out, either at work or through my um, Anesthesia OB Stories email that... Anesth- it's A-N-E-S-O-B stories at gmail.com. Um, that's okay. a temporary site at the moment, but, please okay. but I think big things are coming. And with the partnerships um, that I'm making now with others that have the same passions, I, I think we're going to create a movement. It's not just an idea. It is a movement and we are going to make change.
1: Thank you so, so much.
0: Thank you, Kristen. This has been just a pleasure.
1: This has been Birth Allowed with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthallowedradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll
0: see you next time.